Welcome to the workshop, Anorexics and Bulimics, Going with the Flow, Living in the Now. My name is Bill. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this session. Before we begin, would everybody please turn off your cell phones and pagers? This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share are their own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, ask it basket questions, and sharing on the topic. A basket with paper and pencil is being circulated for you to write any questions that you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from Voices of Recovery, January 12th. Each morning brings a new surrender, a new admission of powerlessness, a new commitment to abstinence through steps one, two, and three. It is a quiet time, a new beginning, a new day. This is from the Lifeline Sampler, page 69. How am I going to spend today? Will I waste it by looking at my past mistakes or by daydreaming about what the future may hold? Living in today is often difficult. Once I let go of yesterday and tomorrow, I can live today to its fullest. Planning and dreaming will not change what my higher power has in store for me tomorrow, so I will turn that over and rest in the knowledge that I will be taken care of. This frees me to accept the gift of the present. It is what I do today that really matters. I can only be happy by spending today gratefully accepting who I am, what I am, what I have, and what I can do in this moment to better myself. Tomorrow will eventually become tomorrow without my worrying or interfering with my higher power's plans. Let me live as if tomorrow is just another word in the dictionary. Let me live in today. Our first speaker is Deirdre, who's from Torrance, who will speak for 20 minutes. So can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Hi, I'm Deirdre, and I am a compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. Um, I wish I felt more prepared. I was just telling her that. Um, I think the easiest way is to do the traditional way, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I have been in program for um, just over three years. I celebrated my third um, birthday of abstinence from all forms of my disease on June 3rd. Um, I'm just going to hold this. Easier. Um, I, was, uh, I am a compulsive eater, an anorexic, and an bulimic to the full ex extent of all three. I um, didn't, I wasn't born that way. I was born skinny. I was always a skinny kid until, as normally happens, the train wreck of someone else's disease kind of careened into my childhood, and then I became a compulsive overeater. Um, I started gaining weight around eight, and I remember even at eight, I started being real smart and dishonest about food and finding ways to sneak food that no one could see that I was eating. It was always a big deal for me that nobody knew how I was eating and, and what I was sneaking like, because my father was always... Um, 
he always separated me out for being the biggest one. I'm a tall girl, which is hard enough to be, but to also be bigger is, um, is as I think some of you know, really, really painful, especially with a dad who's not the most sensitive person. So anyway, I remember going on my first diet at 10. It was uh, eating nothing but salad and Cheerios and swimming for four hours a day. And I lost um, 10 pounds in a week, but I started um, almost fainting, and so then I stopped, and then I don't, I didn't go on another diet for a long time. I remember being about either 10 or 12 and seeing the scale start to go, that's what stimulated the first diet, it was starting to go over 200. And, and I didn't want it to. It needed to start going back down. So I went on that diet, but then it went up over 200, and I stopped weighing myself. My second diet was at 13, or no, 12, and I lied and said I was 13, so I could do Weight Watchers. Um, but, you know, that's the one where they give you a certain amount of food for a week, and, like, you get so much food for a week, and two days later, I'm like, what do I do with myself? Because it's all gone. Um that didn't work. I ate all the food up and decided it wouldn't work well for me. So I continued eating through high school years. Um, I was the smart kid, the perfect kid. I never had anything wrong with me. I, um, I was never angry about anything. I was never upset or ungrateful or, um, you know, displeased. I was always trying to take care of my mom. She's in her own recovery program. I was always trying to be the person my dad wanted me to be. It was just always about how I could not create waves. Um, so all the things I was unhappy about only manifested in the food. I see this now. I didn't know back then. But a big part of my teenage years was just basically me interacting with the people whom I needed to and being a people pleaser, and then me being alone with food. Um, at my peak weight, I was about 17, I weighed 270 pounds. That's when it kind of finally snapped. And I didn't want to, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I just, the self-hate, the self-loathing, everything that I didn't like in myself became manifested in that, so I started Weight Watchers. That worked wonderfully for me. In the first month, I lost 20 pounds. Then the next month, I lost like 15. And then it was like 12, and then it was like 10. So after a while, it really started, didn't, it wasn't good enough for me. So you know how in Weight Watchers, they give you a certain number of points you're supposed to eat, and there's like a range, and there's a bottom. Well, I'm thinking, well, you know, if it's working, I'll just go a little under. And then just a little under. And then until it was like I was eating five points a day when you're supposed to be eating like 24. And then I stopped doing the points thing because I figured, oh, I can, you know, outsmart Weight Watchers. And it got down to me um, eating like 400 calories a day. And I remember I used to watch um, watch TV. And the way I'd keep myself, um, you know, just to burn off that 400 is I'd motivate myself. I'd jog around the house in between the commercial breaks. Um, or when I'd get really hungry, I'd make myself these big, giant glasses of tea. And um, it's so funny, I used to call it tea jogging. And my mom and sister could always say when I was, like, not having a bad day because I'd run laps while the tea was heating up in the microwave because we had, like, this floor pan where I could just run around the house. And so they'd be sitting in the living room watching TV, and you'd, like, see me go by. And then you'd hear a ding, and then I'd disappear. And then you'd see me go by, and you'd hear a ding. And it's, like, it's always funny to realize how crazy you can get when you think you have everything in control. You think everything's fine, and I'm doing it right, and I'm doing it really well. 
But of course, I am a compulsive overeater. So I love food way too much to be a practicing anorexic, but I need to be perfect. So I became a bulimic. I remember um, the I first tried to make myself throw up, and it didn't work. And I was really, really upset. So I went to one of those online pharmacies, and I bought a case full of Ipecac. Um, I bought like 60 bottles that come about this big. But, you know, Ipecac tastes horrible for a reason, and so I couldn't just chug it. So I diluted it in a big, like, 24-ounce thing of water, which just made the the um, impact of it linger for like four and a half hours. Um, so I realized that, that really wasn't the best way to go about things, so I threw the rest of the Ipecac out, but I still needed to make it work. So, you know, I was... A smart kid, like I said, I was Miss Perfect. Got straight A's. I was homeschooled and still got straight A's. Homeschooled by a single parent and gets straight A's. That's self-discipline for a teenager. Um, and I graduated from high school early, and you know I have wealthy parents. Just imagine it. If you're a um, anorexic, bulimic, compulsive overeater with n- about 17, with nothing to do with your days, and a credit card that always gets filled up. Um, I I developed a trick. I don't like to share my trick in meetings, but I developed a system that worked for me that made me an extremely successful bulimic. Um, at the peak of my disease, I was yeah I was eating about four thousand dollars a month in food from Costco, but I dropped in that period. I dropped down to one hundred and five pounds, and I'm five foot eleven. So imagine how much throwing up that takes. Um, My days, my daily schedule was I'd wake up around 10. I'd go and get the biggest plate of food I could and um, eat as as much as I could eat within a half an hour time. I'd just eat robotically for half an hour. Then as soon as the half an hour timer went off, I'd go into the bathroom and I'd do my trick and I'd basically throw up as many times as I needed to until nothing but water was coming up out of my stomach. And then as soon as that bathroom door was closed, I'd go back up, get another plate, do it again, and do it all day long until I went to bed around midnight. And that was every single day of my life. Um, I want to, at my thinnest point, you know, I, I, again, I thought I was so smart, and I thought I was so in control. And, of course, there's barf all over me all the time. I smell horrible. The food's evaporating from the kitchen, and I spend all day locked in the bathroom. And it's like my mom, I just think, I think my mom had no idea how to help, just no skill set whatsoever. So she couldn't, you know, get involved. But one day she's like, you know what, let's go to the bookstore. I'm like, okay, whatever, kind of out of it. And so we get in the bookstore and about halfway in, about half an hour in the car ride to the bookstore, I realized the bookstore is not this far away. And she's like, we're going to the hospital. And this is one of the first times I realized this story. It's the first time I realized that God not only was there for me all along, but can really intervene in your life. While we were in the car on the way to the hospital, my heart stopped because I was so thin. And I didn't realize this happened until I woke up in UCLA Medical with, like, doctors walking around me whispering things and, you know, tubes in me. But talk about timing. For a mom, I mean, there wasn't a hospital around 
from where we lived. So if we hadn't been on the car, I don't think I would have been alive today. And I just have to imagine now, now that I'm a woman and I want to have my own kids, what that must have been like for my mom to be driving in the car. And I literally fell forward, said, I don't feel okay, and passed out in her lap. And I, I just heard, I've gained so much from this weekend. I heard someone say earlier in a workshop that, you know, they wouldn't call it a disease if it doesn't kill you. And so I definitely have the disease. And that's one of the things in the beginning that saved me because then saying it's a disease, you know, I don't have to hate myself for it. So I went into the inpatient program and I was the star student in the inpatient program. I um, had all the therapists convinced that they had worked miracles on me. And I was eating my three meals and, you know, telling the other kids how to do it. It was for a juvenile. I was like 18 at this time. It was for young kids and telling them how to handle their life issues. And um, my parents were so proud of me. They sent me on a trip to England after I got out. And I traveled England. And, you know, I didn't have a setup. So I couldn't really get back into my disease. But I um, was in... And, and being in England was a very spiritual experience for me, and I do believe I gained from the inpatient program and being in England, especially because I was in living in London over September 11th, and that was a really painful thing to have to go through. Um, but I really connected with God that day in particular. I happened to have taken that day to be at St. Paul's by myself just to pray. So I connected with God in a good, in a really good way. But about two weeks after I got back, I went straight back, exactly, to what it was like before. And, you know, that's when I got the worst, because then I knew even God wasn't enough. Like, I thought I believed in God. I was praying. I was, you know, reading my Bible. I was trying to be a good person. But even God isn't enough to save me from my disease. And so, you know, it just went right back. And it was about another year until... My mom just said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Not just because I won't let you kill yourself, but I can't afford you anymore. And, you know, my mom, I said she, she's in her own 12-step program. She had been pressuring me all along to go to OA. I was like, no, 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 that's your thing. That's not my thing. That's your thing. That's not my thing. I'm not going to do it. And then it was also because at the time I was so thin, I was like, they won't understand me. They'll look at me. They'll, hate, they'll, they'll look at me weird and they'll hate me. I'll walk into the room and they won't think that I understand, you know. And she's like, well, you have to do something or you're not living here anymore. And when she said that, for some reason, you know, it, it, you can hear the same thing 700 times. And then one time it'll have like a shade that just sinks like four miles through all your layers and gets to the core. And at that moment, I had that moment that they always talk about where I just backed up and I, I actually leaned up against the wall behind me and did that thing where you just slide down to a sitting position. And I was sitting there, and I just thought, okay, okay, fine. And the thought that went through my head is something that I think only people who deal with this aspect of the, dis the disease can understand, because not everyone always understands when I say this. But the thought that entered me and has been with me every day since then is that, okay, I'd rather risk getting fat than risk living the rest of my life like this. You know, I'd rather risk being fat and happy and okay with that. Because then if I'm happy and okay with that, it's not so horrible. 
Because I remember the day I got down to that number. We always have that magic number that when it appears on the scale, like every single worldly, like peace will just dawn on the world and like there'll be no more starving children. And I had that number. And I remember when I stood on the scale and saw that number, I stepped off. I looked up at myself in the mirror. And that was the worst day of my life because I still hated myself. And I still looked fat in my eyes. And I still wasn't good enough. And now I couldn't say anymore, I hate myself because I'm fat. Now it's just, I hate myself. So uh, on my first OA meeting, I went, um, it says I'm from Torrance, but I'm actually from um, Lake Tahoe. My home meeting is in Reno. I went and I wept through the whole thing. And I got my first sponsor that day. And again, I'm a straight-A student, so I'm like, okay, you say, I'll do this, I'll do that. And this is one aspect, one place where it finally paid off. I got my sponsor, and I listened, and I cried. And I remember when I heard the sentence, it's weakness, not strength, that binds us. Something that broke inside me like a dam. Okay, I don't have to be perfect here. I don't have to try and burn up every single spare second and calorie of my day being someone who's good enough for my father and good enough for, you know, these people in L.A. with their boob jobs and personal trainers. And, you know, I can just be me who's gross sometimes and who really likes food or thinking about it or not eating it and thinking about that. Um, And that day was my first OI meeting and my first day of abstinence. And I have been abstinent to three meals a day no binging, no purging, no diet pills, no under-eating every single day since then. And that, for me, is a sign of what a miracle this is. It's not about me being in control. It's about me letting God be in control and risk His will for me. You know, I definitely have that thing where I'm like, okay, I'm surrendered. God, just do your worst. Like, that's my version of, like, accepting his will in my life, that he's just going to screw it up and I'll just have to deal with it because he sucks so much. But it never has worked out that way. I have been given a new life and program. I um, got to go live in Paris, which could have been a very lonely experience, but because of um, OA, and OA is huge in Paris, I have... Friends, my, my one sponsee that I have right now lives in Paris, and I talked to her a couple times a week. And, you know, I made friends, and they had a big goodbye party for me. And, I mean, you know, if you're the anorexic girl who wants to be the ballerina Audrey Hepburn, getting to, like, have a goodbye party in Paris is like, just kill me now. Um, and it's, thank you, and it's been slow. It's been really hard. And I still really struggle with not being perfect. I really, really want to, like, walk into an OA meeting, just the goddess of program with all answers to all questions, with nothing I feel embarrassed about or ashamed of, and, like, a perfectly clean food history, and just, you know, to have never touched the gray area of imperfection. But one thing I realized is that for us in this disease, we have to live and embrace the gray area. There's lots of OAs who can have really strict, hardcore abstinence that I cannot have because if I cut if I cut refined flour out, I could cut everything but celery out, and I'd still overeat it or just eat nothing. You know, I could eat like 
17 bags of celery or one celery stick a day. I am a freaking diseased eater. And, and I can't, if I count, if I write it down, I'll be writing down like, okay, that was a third of a tablespoon. And I, or if I, you know, if I plan, I just, I need to be free. I need to surrender. I need to give it to God. And that's what I struggle with most today. I often feel like I don't have a right to say I'm abstinent because I haven't been perfect. I often feel like the only way I'll be able to say I'm abstinent is if I don't eat anything at all. Because every, like, food is a gray area. There's no other program where they have to, like, take one beer a day and put it down and go back to work. It's, it's hard, but we can do it, as we see from ourselves. God can take care of us if we're willing to realize that his version of perfection is different than our understanding of what that is. And, you know, I'm just looking forward to the day when I'll get to be an old-timer. And I'll get to see all the little skinny girls come in and I'll be like, yay! And there'll be more of us. I've heard that they're going to be making literature for us now. Thank God. So that's good. And I'm so happy that there's um, people to be here and who asked me to, you know, come and speak on things I feel completely inadequate to talk about. But um, it just shows that God can and will when we let go. And there's so much more peace and joy and life experience in being imperfect than all the things I killed trying to control them, you know. So thank you very much. Our second speaker is Charlotte from Bermuda Dunes, who will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, my name is Charlotte, and I'm bulimic and anorexic. And I'm just delighted to be here today and to share the podium with Deidre. That that was just marvelous. Thank you so much. Um, I started with anorexia as a child. I had all kinds of strange eating behaviors. Um, there were only certain foods that I would eat, and they couldn't be touching on the plate. And on and on and on. I hated cafeteria food. I still hate cafeteria food. Also, casseroles with more, I, I just don't trust things with a lot of ingredients. It's all mixed up. They really confuse and frighten me. And so I just don't eat them. I just don't eat them. Um, as a child, I was addicted to a recording of The Ugly Duckling. And I played it incessantly until my mother took it away and broke it. I have to say, in retrospect, I don't blame her. Um, I was just always very lonely as a child. Um, for two years, from the first grade through the third, some boys followed me home from school every day and would pull down my panties on the busiest corner in Pasadena on my way home from school. And they didn't have the kind of mom I could tell, and I certainly couldn't tell anybody at school. And I think that just made me lonelier. As a teenager, I discovered two things. One was um, sugar, and the other 
was bulimia. And I started early on with um, Epicac also. Uh, but I, I also detested Epicac and could not do it to the amount that I would have liked to have because it was just so bilious. And so I discovered laxatives. And I became a high explosives expert. I mean, I was really good at laxatives. And on and off, I was on that laxative train from, I would say, age 15 to about 50. And that's a lot of laxatives. Um, I want to state or really reinforce something that Deidre said, which is that bulimia and anorexia kill. Um, a lot of people's teeth are leaving who have uh, practiced these diseases. In my own case, uh, and this is very typical, my skeleton did not fully develop, and then I tore it down with all the salts and all the laxatives. And so I have bones like lace, and I've had two major fractures, a hip and a shoulder, and I'm terrified of more. Uh, and uh, conventional means of dealing with the osteoporosis have been largely ineffective. And I just don't know what to do except to keep on keeping on. Um, I tried to write down everything. I've been at this so long, you know, a lot of the time that I was, uh, before I was in OA, I was home just trying not to eat. And that, that was really what I tried not to do because I knew that if I did, I would purge and then on and on and on. Um, I went on to a particularly awful binge. And at the end of it, I was so demoralized that I called a friend I knew from the gym who was in OA. And she invited me to a meeting in West L.A. at Salian's on uh, Robertson there at the Cedars-Sinai Hospital. And I walked in, and there was a banner with the serenity prayer. And it talked about accepting the things I couldn't change. And just in the first five minutes, I got it that I had never accepted anything. And I'm still working on acceptance. This was in 1985. Um, I decided that I needed a really tough sponsor who would whip me into shape, unquote. You know, this is what I really wanted. And so um, I don't know if any of you were around them, but I selected Doris, who was one of the old ladies of the program. And she wasn't a bulimic anorexic at all, and she didn't get those things. It wasn't her fault. But she she didn't get me, and she didn't get this other bulimic gal. And we used to kind of bait her, like this other gal would say, oh, I'd like to eat a whole bunch of bananas and throw them up, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, this really grossed poor Doris out. I mean, she probably did more service than anyone. But, yeah, we, we just couldn't do authority, and we sure couldn't do acceptance. And... Um, I thought abstinence was being on a diet, and I got really good at it. Um, I probably got down to about 90 pounds in so-called abstinence in 85, 
And then finally, oh, I think I ate a half a jar of peanut butter or something, and Doris gave me a lecture about that. And then I thought, well, shoot, I don't need you anyway. I have always thought the O in OA was way too fat. And so I didn't want to be an OA anyhow. And so I decided that I would go to Al-Anon. And so I went to Al-Anon and became their um, food chairman. And so I would drive around with their cookies in the back of my car and not eating any, feeling very virtuous, still down around 90 probably, and uh, thinking that I didn't need OA and I really hoped that no one would ever know that I had gone to OA because it was so shameful, especially that big fat O. And I threw away all my literature, everything from OA, and just pretended to be an Al-Anon, which I really wasn't. But I went anyway, and I thought that would fix everything. Well, you know, that was an easier, softer way, clearly, um, or at least I thought it was. Then I met a man. I I was dating him. I missed my first husband tremendously. I was married to him for 20 years, and a lot of really dramatic things happened at the end, and I still miss him. In any case, I was dating another man, and he, I'll just admit it, he didn't have enough money for me. He uh, had represented better, and when I found out the truth, Well, I managed to just start binging and purging again. It was clearly the answer to all my problems. And uh, it got so bad. I mean, I was doing things that I'm truly ashamed of, like fleets enemas there at the end. I mean, I would do anything to get rid of the food and be thin and, quote, okay, okay. But, you know, I was not okay. I was so not okay. And so... I very grudgingly and reluctantly came back to the program. I did not want to be here. That big fat O in OA was there winking at me, and I really did not want to be here. But I came back anyway because of what I call the concept of marginality. Marginality is where, in recovery, one is slightly better off in recovery than one is in the disease, but only slightly, only slightly. I had what, thank God, turned out to be my last binge. And by the way, every binge I ever had was always the last binge. I was never going to do this again. And because this was the last binge, I had to have everything I would ever want because it was never again. It made perfect sense. In any case, in in the true last binge, it was right before Christmas in 1987, and I was so sick from the laxatives, I took um, Phenomint, which is full of acacia, which is a highly toxic herb off a tree. It's yellow, and uh, turns everything yellow, it turns out. and I, I mean, I was, I think, mortally ill, and I was driving around trying to do last-minute Christmas shopping because I'd been so busy binging and purging that I hadn't gotten any done. And Chance, another name for God, had it that uh, Dr. William Rader was on the radio that day on a talk show by a man named 
Michael Jackson, who was British, and um, Dr. Rader said, you know, if you've got any of these diseases, you could come to my eating disorder facility, or you could go to OA. And I thought, no, I don't want to go to big fat OA. And um, I went anyway. Still hated it. Still didn't want to go. Judged everybody there. Of course, I was thinner than everyone, so I could judge them very well because I thought that thin was better. And the thinner, the better. Several times in my adult life, I've weighed in the 80s and felt pretty darn good. Um, I got to OA and, and just got there because of marginality. It was marginally better to be here than to be doing it, just for today. And I kept coming. I hated, hated, hated it, but I kept coming. And I would go out and do some compulsive swimming before the meeting, and um, then I would drive up to the meeting, and across from the meeting was a pancake house. Well, that was my favorite. I mean, I would fill up with laxatives and Coke and everything and then go to my pancake houses, you know, and stop by the side of the road and have more laxatives, more Coke, more, you know. It, it was just crazy. But that was just how I did it. You know, I, I thought it, it puts within a very wretched sort of diabolical frame of mind to practice these things. Um, in any case, I would cruise up to the meeting and park, and I would always think I'd much rather go to the pancake house. But then I would say, well, you can go after if you still want to go, but just go to the meeting. So then I would go to the meeting, and I would come out, and I'd think, well, pancake house? And I'd say, well, no, but I might do it when I, when I drive up tomorrow. And, uh, and so that, that just kept happening. But I, I always gave myself permission to go some other time. And um, I finally, you know, I really don't like the term abstinence. Um, it doesn't work for me as a bulimic anorexic. I, I don't think it's appropriate for me as a bulimic anorexic. But what, what does work for me is responsibility because I realized that I had never been responsible for anything. And I think that from the bulimic anorexics that I've known and that I've sponsored, that none of us wants to be. One of my sponsorees who died in Stanford Hospital from loss of heart muscle told me that all she wanted was to lie in a hospital bed and have an, an IV and have people come and around her bedside. And you know, I can relate to that. I'd like that too, but I chose a different path. And so I have been responsible for my food and for everything else that I know to be responsible for for more than 17 years now. And, uh, you know, I realized that I wasn't responsible for what I ate, what I said, what I did, anything. 
you know, just no way was I, I wasn't responsible in relationships, I wasn't responsible for anything, and uh, my concept of responsibility, which is really the theme of my recovery, has to do with willingness to accept consequences, which is something that no good bulimic wants. We don't want to have the consequences of our acts. We want to have a free lunch, please. That is where we get to eat it and not take on any of the uh, calories, nutrition, whatever it's got, uh, and just keep it floating along. Well, it, it, I had to buy that it didn't work that way. I had to accept responsibility, and that continues. And so uh, in the last... Uh, meeting in this room, it was called Barnacles, and it was people who'd been in the program a long time, and these two ladies spoke about um, having tainted abstinence. That is abstinence that's not perfect, but keeping on and not starting over. And um, I think there's really a lot to that. As As long as I was willing to take the consequences for what I ate, that was enough. I have not eaten perfectly. Um, most of the time, especially the last 10 years, I have not eaten much in the way of carbs, ever. It just does not work for me. Um, I, don't, I don't do starches, grains, any of that. Uh, not even much fruit. Even fruit, I'm finding, does not work. Um, and so I do a lot of protein and vegetables and some fats. Um, and that seems to work for me. And I'm, I'm just very grateful that it does. Also, I truly believe in eating boring, repetitive food. You know, that works. And this is something people say, there's no variety. Can't you eat something else? No. No, no, no. This is too precious. You know, I have had many accomplishments. I've worked, um, I have a JD a degree, two MAs, and a PhD. Uh, and it, but it doesn't matter um, in the long run. I don't work as a lawyer, or I was also a counselor at the Betty Ford Center for a while, and I don't work as a counselor anymore. I teach yoga and Feldenkrais, and I find that that satisfies me. One thing that's really important to me is learning to ask the most important question in my inventory. And that question is, what do I want for myself? When I take the time to get quiet and drop into myself or into communion with my higher power, I can have an idea of what I want for myself. Um, a lot of people uh, at this gathering and elsewhere talk about a division between spirituality and religion. I found from the very beginning that if I would go to a church, get on my knees in front of the holiest place there, and beg 
not to do it again. That this prayer would be answered. And I have grown very close to my God. I've become much more observant in my religious practice. And I find no incompatibility at all between spirituality and religion um, and, and, and the 12 steps. For me, it all works together. Um, more and more, I'm, I'm wanting to practice the virtues. I always thought that being virtuous would be boring, but I find that I really do want to practice the virtues. Um, there's one that comes to mind. Um, the big title is called Custody of the Senses, and that's where you watch, you know, what you look at, what you listen to, what you eat, what you say, all this stuff. And, and, and my particular major in Custody of the Senses is Custody of the Tongue. You know, this is about what do I eat, what do I say, do I gossip, do I just talk to fill up time, or do I have something to say or to ask, really? And so I see that this is a very much a deepening process, but it started out with something that I think is so important, which is to be willing to keep starting over, because one of these times it's going to take. One of these times the start will take and your engine will be running and you'll be off and into abstinence and into recovery. And so let yourself get absorbed into marginality and start over if you need to and keep starting over if you need to. And for me, the doctrine of consequences and responsibility and acceptance are the key. And, you know, I've done a lot of really marvelous things in my life. Um, and OA is the most important thing that ever happened to me ever happened to me, the most important thing that ever happened to me, because I could not enjoy anything without what I've gained in this program. So I'm very, very, very grateful, and I wish you all well. Thank you. Oh, P.S. I want to show you one of my tools. This is my prayer and food book, uh, my prop. And on the, on the uh, Verso page here, the left-hand page, I write a prayer every morning, and it has to fit on this page uh, because I can get too wound up with trying to box God in with my little lawyer-type conditions. And so this one's got a half a page prayer. That's great. And then I write down everything that I eat every day. And I have done this for 17 years. And I really recommend that. It makes it real. Thanks. All right. We will now have 10 minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. And here we go. Do you believe there isn't enough support meetings specifically for bulimics and anorexics in OA currently? And this isn't directed to either person. So. Uh, 
Um, yes and no. Yes and no. I wish that there were more specific meetings for um, anorexics and bulimics, especially for anorexics, because I know that uh, there can be a polarization that happens. I know I've been in OA meetings where I've been given the definite vibe of you don't belong here. Um, or, you know, if only. I wish I could have thrown up. And, 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 and it's that kind of thing that I just had to do what the big book says and say, this is a sick person. How can I better this situation? So yes and no. Um, I think we can bring a lot to regular meetings. And I know that regular meetings have saved my life. Because again, like I said, it's weakness, not strength, that binds us. And that is the key for me. That's the key to arresting my anorexia. Um, you know, listening to her talk. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. It reminded me of God, the laxatives. Oh, my God. Just, you know, the list of excuses for the counter guy about why I was going through so many boxes of maximum strength, x lax And the point of that is... Um, for me, the anorexia and the bulimia was about punishing myself. It was my consequence for the filth of having food inside my body. For, uh, for, for, you know, for an anorexic, um, eating feels like a very unclean thing. It's almost like you know, committing a crime or you know, beating a child. It's like, oh my God, I ate something. And so... And, and so much of the OA tradition is about love, self-forgiveness. You're not going to be perfect, so don't expect it of yourself. And that's, that's why I think, you know, yeah, OA, I wish it could focus more on what our needs are. But I don't want it to be, I fear for myself, I would fear that I would break off and then start dissecting like I would with everything else. I, I cracked up at the, the thing with multiple ingredients. Well, I could sit with the OA 12 and 12 and break out the ingredients that don't work for me. And I don't want to let that happen. I want to be, my life needs to be about tolerance right now and um, tolerating just existence as it is without me fiddling with it. And so that's why I sort of think that, you know, I could, I as an anorexic and bulimic can definitely benefit from trying to see what I can gain from every regular OA meeting. So hopefully with, as more of us come into the program, there will be more specific focuses, but I would never recommend that an, an anorexic bulimic just avoid regular meetings altogether. So I hope that helps. I love OA. I can tell I'm in an OA meeting. I'm the only man here. Okay. Some things never change. What advice do you give to the girl who keeps coming to program and can't stop throwing up? Do you tell her she is dying? Not directed to Well, anorexia and bulimia kill. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, if somebody had told me years ago that continuing to do this behavior would kill me or wreck my teeth or my skeleton, 
it wouldn't have made any difference. So in a way, it doesn't matter what you tell somebody because they have to experience their own bottom. I've heard Richie Kay say that some people die on the way to the bottom, and I'm afraid that's true. And there's really nothing we can do about it. And so we do what we can, and then we save ourselves, and we help the people who are helpable. People who are not helpable, by definition, are not helpable. We can't save them. And so we can give them all the dire messages, all the truth, and it won't make any difference. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also just had a comment I wanted to make there. What advice, to the girl, what advice do you give to a girl who keeps coming to program and can't stop throwing up? Do you tell her she is dying? Uh, I would say that she knows whether or not she's dying. She wouldn't ask if she didn't know. What I would tell her is basically what she said. You don't have to choose to die, but in order to choose not to die, you have to risk living. And risking living means risking living an imperfect life that's out of your control, and eating three meals a day that include that include fat grains, unfortunately. And you know, but it gets easier. It gets easier. I eat fat now. Oh my God, I eat fat. I actually measure it in. Who would believe it? So, just um, the advice: keep coming back. Question, how can I work the steps if I am angry at God? Not directed to that person. Well, that's the best way to work the steps if you're angry at God. You know, you can't have anything going on with God if you don't have a relationship with him. So start a hate relationship with him. He doesn't care. I mean, really, you just write to him and say, Dear God, I hate you. Why did you make me fat, bulimic, anorexic, whatever you think you are? Um, and start a relationship. Start a dialogue with God. And I recommend talking to God. I, I formally pray three or four times a day, setting aside time to be with God because I want to have a relationship with God. And that doesn't include my little written prayer there um, because it's so important. I do not believe that anyone can get well without a relationship with God. And so if you happen to hate him, good, at least you know how you feel. I mean, most of us are in terminal denial, you know, till we get pretty much better. And so if you know you hate him, that's great. Tell him. Tell God you hate him and watch where the relationship goes. You have a relationship with God. Thank you.
Have you felt accepted in OA since most of those in OA are compulsive overeaters, not bulimics or anorexics? Um, yes, I have. I have. Um, not at first always. And, um, you know, I have to say it, it, it's definitely on a case-by-case basis. And I think that's just with human nature and not just in OA. Because I'll tell you right now, other anorexics in OA have been some of the most competitive and unaccepting of me. We know how we can be. So it, it just, it all has to do with the person. Um, but I think that when it gets down to it, when we all realize that we're here to be freed from the obsession, and that's what it is. Obsessing about not eating is still obsessing about food. Then I think we all find that common ground and that love that we all want. You just have to wait for it to hit you. Because a big part of what we do in this program is, well, the num- what we do in this program is numb ourselves out. So we might not even realize we're being accepted when we are because we're looking for the people who aren't accepting us. I know I can definitely be that way. So, yeah, I think it has to, you have to judge each meaning and pray, pray for the acceptance where, where and when you need it. How do you deal with stopping the purging but not compulsively eating? Again, not Well, I think that's a really tall order, frankly. Um, I have compulsively eaten. I want to confess that I have compulsively eaten in recovery, in responsibility. And what I have done is what I told you before is I have accepted the consequences of any compulsive eating, and I don't like the consequences. Um, I am not going to start over because I ate compulsively, but I am going to accept responsibility for what I eat. And so if I have eaten too much or eaten it too fast or the wrong stuff or you name it, that's too bad. I have bought it. I have owned it, and it is mine. And so I, I do believe that things balance out. Pretty soon, one develops a consciousness of consequences such that stopping the bad behavior, quote, bad behavior, purging behavior, kicks in a lot sooner. And two, when I'm hungry, I eat. I don't limit myself to three meals a day. I eat when I am hungry, and I trust that if I'm eating a lot in the morning or the middle of the day, that maybe later I won't want to eat so much, but I have permission to do it. Basically, I tell myself I can eat anything I want, any amount of it, but I have to take the consequences. And that works for me. 
And so you're looking at 17 years of consequences here and having a better life than ever before. Thank you. That's really good. I just also wanted to say, because I do a little differently, so I thought maybe provide an alternative. Um, I, I, how do you, in the beginning, I was really easy on myself. My abstinence was three meals a day, nothing in between. My meals lasted for three and a half hours. Um, but that's what I needed to do to stop the, the, I mean, it wasn't like, you know how we can be, I wasn't really eating that much, but because I'd like cut it into such small little pieces and like just eat like and season every single piece individually that it would take three and a half hours. And that's what I needed to do to stop the purging because that's what was killing me. Then once I got into a place where that was okay with me, then I reeled it back. And this was with the help of my sponsor who isn't an anorexic or bulimic. I reeled it back. It's like, okay, cut it back to three hours, two and a half. And you know what? When I became willing to say, this is okay for now, God, please help it change and change it for me because I can't change it myself, it did. Now I eat like, like now I can pass for a normal person, you know, and, and, but it, it took about like a year just to get to normal meal times, then a year to get carbs in, then another year to get fat in, and I needed to be okay with that. So now, like I said, I do have a hard line abstinence. I do three meals a day with nothing in between. I don't take laxatives. I don't take diet pills. I don't binge and purge. And I know what's a binge and I know what a purge is. So, I mean, that's what I do. So, Okay. It's, are these? Okay. Time for the traditions and, and progress here. Uh, we're actually out of time for the Asket Basket. There's some more things in the Asket Basket. Uh, do we want to continue on with the Asket Basket, or do we want to go? Okay, is, is that a conscience on that? Okay. Uh, let's see. In OA meetings, this guy keeps... <laughs> it isn't me. I don't know, it might be. In OA meetings, this guy keeps following me in meetings to give me... The, let's see, to, to give me these purge enveloping hugs, I notice it really makes me uncomfortable and I dodge him. I don't want to offend him. What would you do to get him to stop? And this is to the second speaker. And, okay, and you know, I, I can answer part of that too because that's happened. Well, I would suggest to this lady that she ask that question, what do I want for myself? Do I want to be dogged by the sky and his icky hugs? Um, and I think it's really important to speak the truth. Turn around and say to the guy, you're doing this makes me really uncomfortable. Please stop. It's that simple. What do I want for myself? And I know that Deirdre had... Oh, okay. We're, we're in accord here. <laughs> that actually happened to me. I completely misread. Um, I, I, I misread how she was taking this. And basically what she did is she called me and she said, 
you know, it really makes me uncomfortable. I wish you wouldn't do it. And, you know, that's what you do. That's what you do. Uh, there's other things that I know that can work. You get to the guy's sponsor. You can get that information to him through his sponsor. Uh, and if you tell him and he doesn't, you know, and if he doesn't go along with the program, find another man in the program that you trust and ask him to talk to him because we will do that. You know, we're, we're family and we're, we, we, we're not here to predate on each other. You know, it's, that's, that's a bad thing. So. And last one here, either speaker. How can I find a sponsor who is a bulimic? Well, I think it's uh, safe to say that we're both active sponsors, so there's two. Um, also, you know, it's rare. It's hard. There's not a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of long-distance sponsoring. My one active sponsor lives in Paris. So, like I said, it, and it works. So, um, and then just broach the topic gently. If you see someone who has what you want, just ask and, and ask if they have a history with it. Um, but I'm also, you know, my sponsor's not a bulimic, and it still works for me. So either either you've got to surrender to long-distance sponsoring or, you know, pick someone who doesn't have that aspect and hope for the best. So. Yeah, yeah. I have six sponsorees, uh, most of whom are bulimic, and five of them do live out of town. I live in, in the desert near Palm Springs. Um, one of them lives in Mexico City, one in Dallas, one in Los Aptos, which is way up north in California, um, and some others whom I forget, <laughs> and one in, one in, uh, in Santa Cruz. But um, I find that talking on the phone, I've done email. I got rid of email for New Year's because I found that it sort of took God out of my house. That was just my experience to get rid of the Internet, and, and it's been, a, been wonderful. And so we have phone conversations or U.S. mail, and these are more personal connections for me. And I think that being face-to-face -face with a sponsor or sponsoree is not necessary. What's important is the connection. Sometimes, you know, in the how questions, they've got this really good, it's question 26 in the first 30, that says, what is the, the connection between anonymity and the telephone? Well, the connection is that when you're on the phone, you're not face-to-face. -face. You can tell secrets you would never tell. When you're on the phone, you can, you know. And, uh, in fact, my first sponsoree from 1985, whom I still have, she and I didn't see each other for about four years, ever. And we told each other everything. We knew all about each other's families and ex-husbands and you name it. And we had and still have the best relationship in the world. What, what I think a person needs is two things. And it's not necessarily somebody bulimic or anorexic or whatever. It's someone whom they admire, someone whose recovery they admire, someone who has what they want. You've heard that before. And the other thing is someone who likes them. Get somebody who likes you and who wants you and who is on your side, not somebody who's putting up with you. Get somebody who likes you so that you can have 
a companion in recovery. Okay, we're a little bit over time, and uh, after, a, after a moment of meditation for the compulsive eater of any variety who still suffers both in and out of these rooms, uh, if we could join hands and uh, end with the serenity prayer. Or maybe we won't join hands. We're really dispersed. Okay. But we will have a moment of silence. I'm running this. <laughs> you can rise if you'd like. Sorry. All right. That's a great idea. <laughs>